Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn how parents can get smarter about making big decisions with best-selling author Emily Oster and why scientists think a supernova we saw nearly a thousand years ago may be a completely new type of supernova. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Parenting comes with some tough decisions. For some of those decisions, you can use data to make the best choice, but others aren't so easy. And that's what inspired today's guest to write her latest book. Emily Oster is an economics professor at Brown University and the author of several books on parenting, including her latest, The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early years. It's full of data-backed answers to questions ranging from how much screen time is too much to how do you pick the best school? For today's conversation, I asked her if there was one thing parents should do first to help them start making better decisions. The whole first part of the book kind of has two sort of big picture ideas. So one is the idea that you should in any phase of parenting, but this is a good phase to kind of revisit. You should think about sort of what you want your life to look like and what are your priorities and, you know, priorities in kind of a big picture sense, but also priorities like, what do you want to happen every day? Like, do you want to sit down for dinner every night? Like, what do you want your weekends to look like? You want them to be like super free? You want them to like have a lot of activities in them? Like that you should start by outlining that because that will influence a lot of the downstream decisions that you make. And if you don't do that, then you will make some downstream decisions probably that will then get in the way of the thing that you wanted to have your life look like. So that's kind of one big picture point in the book. And the second big picture point is that when you encounter big decisions, like what school should my kid go to, or, you know, should we do this sort of like really like intensive extracurricular or should they go to summer camp, like things that are going to influence not just, you know, today's lunch, but like weeks and weeks or months or years of your life, that you should take some structured decision-making approach. And so I outline a, you know, a particular structure that people could use. There's others you could use, but just the general idea that, that big decisions like that deserve attention and focused attention, but not all the attention. You shouldn't think about them for months and months and months every time you go in the shower and try to fall asleep. You should instead like plan to think about them a lot in a particular set of moments, but not in every moment. Right. And that's that's the four F's you're talking about, right? That's the four F's that I'm talking about, yes. So the four F's, so the first F is frame the question. Think about your concrete alternatives in this choice, not just should I do this or not, but should I do this or this other thing? That's sort of concrete, frame the question. Second step, fact find. So that's some combination of get some data to the extent that it's available or get some information about your logistics. Sort of think about like how under these two choices, what will things look like and what are the costs and benefits in terms of the sort of data pieces for your kid or your or your family. So get all that together, write it down, get it in, in all in one place. Third F is final decision. So make a decision, sit down with the data in one moment or, you know, one meeting and make a decision about what you're going to do and then try to move on from there. Uh, except for the fourth F, which is follow up, which says that you should plan a time to revisit the decision and decide if it was the right decision. So I think we often, uh, when we make a choice like sending our kids to some school, we're then sort of like, okay, that's it. I'm locked into that. I can never change that. That's not true. Most of our decisions, we could change or we would have an opportunity to change. And if we don't 
plan to follow up on them, then we probably won't. And so I think there's a value to as part of the initial decision making process saying, okay, we're going to think about it again. And here's the time at which we will plan to do that. But uh, change is terrifying. And uh, people, some people, you know, they'll be afraid to take a new job because they say, what if the job doesn't work out? Or what if I move here and it doesn't work out? And that same kind of logic I can see extending to a kid like, well, you know, I can't pull my kid out of school after a year because I'll have all these friends. Like, do you have any tips for conquering some of those fears of to allow parents to be allowed to change their minds later? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is to sort of reframe it as that is a decision. So if you sort of said like, like people are thinking about like the default, okay, the default is like, that's like a safe thing. Well, choosing the default is a choice. And so all of these things are a choice. And I think we sometimes, when we frame a decision as like, should I pull my kid out of school or not? We're sort of thinking of or not as like, that's the default, but like, actually that's also a choice. And so I think if we do that, there's maybe a better way to move forward. And the other thing I would say is that there is always a cognitive dissonance around not wanting to change our our minds, even putting aside the considerations you put up for that example, which I think are important. There's just like, I don't want to have been wrong. Like, I don't want to like revisit this and then be like, well, actually I should have done it differently. And that's why I think it's so important to plan to revisit it. Because if you say, well, I, I was always going to revisit this. It's not that I knew I was just it's like, that was in the plan. Like I had the plan. I had to revisit it. It dials down a little bit of the cognitive dissonance there. That's hugely helpful. In regards to facts finding, I know there's lists of rankings of, you know, good schools and then get grades, but I don't know exactly how those criteria work. So when evaluating a school, what tips do you have for facts finding when it comes to where to send your kids? So I think the first thing to say is that all of our data on schools is really limited because it all is basically about test scores. And so when you are a parent choosing a school, like for most parents, I don't think that the main thing on their mind is only test scores. And if you said like, well, I really care about like, is the school nice? Are they going to raise my kid to be nice? Do I care about diversity? I care about, like, forget it, your data is over. Doesn't mean that you can't collect information about those things, but you just shouldn't, you can't look to like research papers. On the test score piece and the sort of like school performance piece, you know, we have a little bit of data around charter schools and private schools. I think much of which sort of circles around the idea that those options can be better, but largely in situations in which the district public schools are not very good. So charter schools tend to perform better, but tend to perform better, particularly in places where the district public schools are underperforming. When you try to dial into like what is it about the school? Like, what is the particular thing you should look for? Class size is almost the only sort of consistent thing that's correlated with sort of good outcomes and good performance. The other thing that comes up a little bit is like feedback for teachers. Like, is there a sort of robust system for people to get feedback on their teaching quality? But other than that, many of the kinds of things people sort of talk about, we just don't have a lot of strong evidence in the direction that like this one particular thing matters. So, If you want to find the best school for your kid, pay attention to class size and don't sweat test scores too much. Again, that was Emily Oster, an economics professor at Brown University and the author of several books on parenting, including her latest, The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early years. Emily will be back tomorrow to run down the research on learning to read. About a thousand years ago, in July of 1054 AD, Islamic, Chinese, and Japanese cultures recorded a strange astronomical event. Suddenly, an extremely bright light appeared in the sky. This light was about four times brighter than Venus. 
And like Venus, it was so bright it could be seen in the daytime. And like the moon, it could even cast a shadow at night. Scientists have long believed that this was a supernova, the final explosive stage of a star's life. But just recently, an international team of scientists have found evidence that it's even cooler than that. It may have been an entirely new kind of supernova, an electron capture supernova. Scientists have always known there was something strange about the supernova in 1054. It left behind the Crab Nebula, a celestial object that's been studied for hundreds of years. It's a weird one, too. The elements in it are different from what scientists would expect from either of the two main kinds of supernovas, thermonuclear supernovas and core collapse supernovas. A thermonuclear supernova starts as a binary star system, where a low-mass white dwarf star co-orbits a younger star. After the older star has used up all of its nuclear fuel, material from the second star gets sucked into the first star and its mass increases, and that eventually causes it to explode. But a core collapse supernova happens when the star is much more massive. At the end of its life, this star burns out all its fuel and cools down. Then gravity takes over and the core collapses. This creates a shock wave that makes the outer part of the star explode, and that leaves behind a super-dense core. Electron capture supernovas are a Goldilocks case between the death of low-mass stars and really massive stars. Scientists have struggled to find one out there in the universe, even though they've been theorized for 40 years. But now, researchers think they may have found one. Electron capture supernovas start off with stars about 8 to 10 times the mass of our sun, just slightly too small to create a core collapse supernova. After the star uses up all of its fuel and begins to collapse, heavier elements like neon and magnesium capture electrons, which combine with protons to produce neutrons. As more and more electrons are captured, the star becomes more compacted and pressure increases. Eventually, the star's core collapses completely, and that causes an explosion. The research team compared observations of a 2018 supernova to theoretical predictions and found a match. They confirmed that it was, in fact, an electron capture supernova. Then, the team compared the unique signature to known historical supernovas, like the one in 1054, and they saw some striking similarities. Scientists are now even more confident that the light that appeared in the sky 1,000 years ago was an electron capture supernova. It just took us this long to see our first one. Let's do a quick recap of what we learned today, starting with the fact that Emily Oster says, before you make big decisions as a parent, first, decide what you want your life to look like and what your priorities are. Doing that will help you avoid making decisions down the road that get in the way of living that life you want to live. And plan on doing a lot of thinking about your big decisions, but don't let them consume every minute of every day. Then, for each decision, follow the four Fs. The first F is frame the question, as in think about the question and frame it with concrete alternatives instead of just do this or don't do this. The second F is fact find, so get whatever data you can about each decision. The third F is final decision, meaning actually make the decision and try to stick with it. And the fourth F is follow up, which we often forget to do. 
Schedule a date and time in the future for a follow-up so it feels like if you change your mind, you're still the one in control and you're the one making the decision to do that. I think these lessons are great for parents and non-parents alike, right? I mean, making a plan to revisit a big decision that you made, that's huge. Who does that, right? But it's such a good idea. And thinking about what you want your life to look like and then making decisions based on that. I mean, that's something that everybody can benefit from because I feel like we so often get it. I mean, we I'm talking about me. I so often get in the trap of just saying yes to everything, just wanting to please people. And then you find yourself in a place where you're doing a lot of an activity that you don't enjoy or your weekends are all taken up with something done for other people and you're not really living the life that you want. So it's good to sit down and think about the big picture first. Yeah, good call. I mean, you kind of built in a way of doing this because when you moved, you're renting. And so that way you're not like committed to a house. And at some point, your lease will be up. So at that point, you will be forced to evaluate like, oh, do I want to stay in this city? So you you like gave yourself an automatic built-in timeline, which is kind of cool. I mean, some would say that I gave myself an automatic timeline and a way to reevaluate. Some would say that I am afraid of commitment. You know, <laughs> it's it's uh, depends on your perspective. There you go. Well, we also learned that for decades, scientists have theorized that there's a third option between the two types of supernovas that we know about. That is the thermonuclear supernovas that happen to low mass binary star systems and the core collapse supernovas that happen to really massive stars. An electron capture supernova would happen to a star that isn't quite big enough for a core collapse supernova. And that supernova gets its name from all the electrons that are captured by heavier elements as the star collapses. A team has finally discovered that a supernova studied in 2018 has all the hallmarks of this type of supernova, and even cooler, added bonus, so does the supernova that created the Crab Nebula way back in 1054. And that's not the only ancient supernova humans have witnessed. The first one was observed by Chinese astronomers in 185 AD, and the most recent was in 1604, known as Kepler's supernova. 1604 was the most recent. Cody, I want to see a supernova. Come on. It's time. Give it to me. I will hope that that happens for you. All you want is for a supernova to happen. All I wanted growing up was for Guns N' Roses to get back together and go on tour again. And they did. And I've seen them three times. Wow. (laughs) You know, I hope we all get what we want. Yes. Just remember... You could use just a little patience. I assume that's a Guns N' Roses reference. Oh, man, we've got some work to do. (laughs) The writer for today's first story was Brianna Brownell. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Help us follow the four F's. We'll frame questions for you. We'll find the facts. We'll make the final decision to publish an episode. But it's up to you to follow up and join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.